Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGB Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now here's your host, David Hinojosa. Welcome to another edition of Good Books Radio. This is your host, David Hinojosa. My guest today is the best-selling author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation, which is currently being adapted for television by Legendary Entertainment and producers Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, and Scott Rudin. He has also written for ESPN, IGN, Fast Company, Slash Film, and the AV Club, and appears regularly on Paul Shear's How Did This Get Made podcast, where he interviews the biggest names responsible for the worst movies ever made. He lives in New York and is here to talk about his new book titled The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. My guest today is Mr. Blake J. Harris. Blake, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on, David. I appreciate it. First and foremost, let me just congratulate you on your new book. I found your book very engaging and fascinating. I, I didn't know how little I knew about VR until I read your book. Thank you. Well, it's not even so much VR. It's really just these interesting people with bad stories. But uh, yeah, the book, I, I thought the book was going to take me about two years to write. It ended up taking me four years to write. So I'm glad uh, that you enjoyed it and hopefully thought the extra time was worth it. Right. Uh, no, I, I really did enjoy it. But before we get into the book, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background. Um, sure. Please. I saw an interview where you mentioned that you were a stockbroker prior to becoming a full-time author. How did this transition happen? Ooh, I love telling that story because it's a story of me finally getting to do what I want to always do for a living. So um, out of college, uh, by the time I finished college, uh, you know, 22 years old, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, that that was what I loved to do most, but I had no idea how to make a career out of it. And so I uh, took a day job in uh, New York working at Rockefeller Center uh, for working for a company then called Fiat, eventually called New Edge. And I was trading commodities for Brazilian clients, so like sugar and coffee and soybeans. And uh, it was pretty fun. It was the first few years were a lot like that movie Trading Places at the end. Uh, and then it all went electronic and got a lot less interesting. But anyway, I did that for eight years. Um, and then meanwhile, I was always doing screenwriting stuff and filmmaking stuff and uh, spectacularly unsuccessful at that um, until finally I started um, investigating this uh, Sega and Nintendo story and looking at the business battle from the early 90s and caught some traction with that. Um, ended up connecting with Seth Rogen, uh, as you mentioned, you know, he's doing the TV adaptation and that really did change my life. And so on my 30th birthday, that was my last day ever at uh, Trading Commodities. And ever since then, I've been writing and wearing shorts every day, even though it's cold here in New York. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's a, that's an awesome story and how your book became, <laughs> Thanks. Um, you know, it's now being adapted into TV series. Well, I'll come back to that in just a little bit. Now, among the articles that you've written, I read one you did for ESPN on the oral history of the show The League, which I'm a fan of, by the way. W were you a fan of the show? Yeah, I, I thought it was kind of interesting because um, Sega, Nintendo, and even this book, and I, most of the stuff I write, it's not that I'm a hardcore fan, it's that I find the people interesting. But that was my first experience of writing something that I absolutely loved uh -huh. and was kind of uh, geeking out talking to these people. But yeah, it's one of my favorite shows. But how did you end up writing uh, about the league for ESPN? Was this like on assignment or was this something that you just pitched to ESPN or how did that happen? Good question. So um, I would say that almost every... Uh, writing project, because I like to do long writing projects, kind of comes together in somewhat difficult and unexpected ways. But that was the easiest one, because 
I had been working with Paul Shear, who plays Andre Nozick in mm-hmm. the show, um, and doing the interviews with those terrible filmmakers for how did this get made. And um, as a big fan of the show, I asked if anyone was doing like a comprehensive story or oral history as it was coming to an end. And he said, no. So he just put me in touch with all the people. <laughs> so that was really the easiest assignment I've ever had. Um, and then uh, sort of an interesting way, like, um, you know, as you mentioned, I've written for a, a bunch of different places over the past five years. And mm-hmm. um, I'm obviously grateful for those opportunities, but I did find that when I was hi- you know, when I was hired to write things on assignments mm-hmm. um, and, you know, being paid for a specific thing. And in that case, the, the, the publication had the right, and especially in my opinion, had the ability to change what they wanted to get what they wanted. Right. Um, and I didn't really like that. So since then, I've always tried to write things first and then place the article later, um, either for free or for a small amount of money, as long as they let me publish it as I wanted it. And so that was a case where it was 10,000 words. It was definitely way longer than ESPN would have normally wanted. But as you know, a fan of the show, I had to get it all right, and and it is one of my favorite things I've ever written. That that's great. I mean, you keep creative uh, control over your 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 exactly. writing. That's awesome. Now, uh, going back to the console wars, and you wrote this in 2014, and like we just mentioned, it's currently being adapted into series. How did uh, Seth Rogen and and uh, you know uh, Evan Goldberg contact you and said? We love the book. We want to make it into a, a, a series. How did that happen? How can you tell us a little bit of how that sure. came about? Uh, I love telling that too. That that is like the life changing experience that set all this into motion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, uh, at its heart, Council Wars and even this book, I think of them as business stories. And so, as you know, an entrepreneur myself, or what, to whatever degree a you know a freelance writer is, right. uh, I, I take lessons away from the story and. You know, one of the ones that I took away from learning about Sega and their miraculous success was they did a great job of aligning themselves with uh, young, talented people whose name value was much better than their own. And um, identifying that talent and forming strong relationships. And um, so I literally just Googled celebrity gamers mm-hmm. and uh, Seth came up on a list. And, and I should mention, like, I had absolutely no expectation that anything would come from this. You know, uh-huh. he, he's still pretty famous. He wasn't that necessarily up and coming. But I thought there's any way that he could be involved. Um, that would be great. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, it really did shock me when my literary manager told me that Seth and his uh, business partner and creative partner, Evan Goldberg, were interested in meeting. And then I went out and met with them in January 2012 mm-hmm. um, on a Thursday. And I, I remember that because we had this great two-hour meeting. It was probably the first time in my career that I actually met with a decision maker. Usually the meetings would end with, okay, we'll get back to you. And then right. things just sort of fizzle. But I got a call later that day that they wanted to um, produce a movie. Then it was a movie based on the book, and they wanted to support the documentary that I was doing with my co-director, Jonah Tulis, and they'd write the forward to the book. And I was like, oh, my God, my life has changed. But it was a Thursday, and then I had, you know, it took a while to formally figure out these things. And so about on Monday morning at 6 a.m., I was back at the back at Rockstar Center trading commodities. But I was grateful, and uh, it ended up changing my life ultimately. So that's great. That's awesome. It's an awesome story. It's like, so what did you do on Thursday? Oh, just nothing. Just had a meeting with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It was weird. Like, I, um, you know, over the past five or six years now, I've been so fortunate to interview a lot of people that I admire. And right. I, you know, I think it's part of my job. I, I should not get starstruck. These are just people, and I want to talk to them that way. But the, right. first, the first time I met Seth, I, it was the last time I got starstruck. And I remember 
like he, uh, I was sitting down and he walked into the room and for a few seconds, I didn't even get up to shake his hand because I just felt like, oh, wow, this is a movie. It's the guy from the movie. I'm in a movie. I wonder what the character's going to do next. And I thought, no, man, you got to, I'm the person. I got to interact. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, now, let's let's talk a little bit about your uh, your new book, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution That Swept Virtual Reality. Again, congratulations. Um, I, I really found it intriguing and very engaging how this company pretty much was created out of nothing. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to talk. We'll talk a little bit about Palmer Lucky, which is a central uh, the player here in your in your uh, book. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I want to first let, let's. Uh, I want for you to please, in simple terms, could you explain what is the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality? Because these two uh, themes, you know, kind of, uh, they pop out a lot in your book. And I just wanted to see if you could uh, give us a brief explanation sure. of what those are. And I hope that these terms could, you know, come up more and more in everyday life. So right. I'm happy to explain. So uh, virtual reality um, and augmented reality are, are similar technologies. They're both experienced by wearing a pair of glasses or putting on a headset or something like that. And as you know, time progresses, it should be you know it'll be it'll really just be a pair of glasses, maybe a contact lens. But virtual reality is when you are fully immersed in a computer-generated environment. Um, so a lot of people remember VR from the '90s, like you know, it was this blocky graphics you'd put on a headset. It wasn't that great back then. Um, now it's much better. And I guess like the ultimate version of VR would be the Matrix. So that was kind of dystopian, but where you know you're physically in one place, but you feel like you're somewhere else, and it impacts all your senses. And then augmented reality is when you are um, in the real world um, and, and you're seeing things as they are, but there's computer-generated graphics overlaid on top of it. And so mm. this is often sort of described as like Terminator vision. Like, you know, let's say that I was sitting across from you um, mm -hmm. and then it would say your name and it would tell me your background and maybe it would have links to interviews with you um, and sort of just this additional information. So it's, you know, basically fully immersive versus over, you know, augmented reality is just augmenting what you have and overlaying information on top of the real world. Right, right. Okay, well, that's uh, that's very clear. Uh, now, what motivated you to write about Oculus? Uh, I mean, you obviously that's what the the, the book is about. You know, it's the the rise of this company. But what was yeah. the motivation behind it? So, um, you know, as we just talked about, Council Words was like a life changing experience for me and. It was the first time my writing had ever been out there, first time there was any publicity, basically the first time anyone other than my mom read any of my stuff. <laughs> and so it was a really big deal when Popular Mechanics said they wanted to do an article about me and they had me come in and do a photo shoot. And my dad was so excited he came because he loves Popular Mechanics. Uh -huh. And so all, all of it is a way of saying that um, in, in May of 2014, the same month the book came out, there was this Popular Mechanics issue that I was going to be in. Uh, which was a very big deal in my family. And it happened to be Mother's Day, the day that it came out. And oh, we nice. were all at brunch in the city. And I was like, wow, I'm going to get this issue and give it to my mom. And that's so fun and cool. Uh -huh. And then I went to a bodega and bought it. And uh, I ended up taking a little while to give it to her because the cover story was about Palmer Lucky and Oculus. And I was so much more interested in that <laughs> than I was about my big moment. Um, and, uh, and And shortly after that, uh, I ended up being put in touch with Palmer, and then it took a couple of years, or I think like it was like 14 months, to get the access that I wanted to tell the kinds of stories that I do. But that was really what initially piqued my interest. Mm -hmm. um, and I should also mention that you know it wasn't just reading that story; it was actually trying their product. And my reaction 
was similar to, but I would say like 90% of people's reactions where you just put on this headset, the, uh, the Oculus Rift, uh, the, the, the DK1, the developer kit yeah. at the time. And, uh, and, and my reaction was just, oh my God, I've seen the future. And mm-hmm. it's just this exciting moment, but also this uncertain moment. Cause like, what does that actually mean? Like, and, and from a corporate perspective, like, how do you make a business out of this? Yes, it's very, very cool. Right. And it'll be very, very cool if we can get other people to develop cool content for it. But like, what does that mean? How do we make money out of this? How do we build a business and a future? And, um, and so sort of, sort of telling that story was very fascinating to me. It, it was fascinating. And it was fascinating to read uh, your, your research and, and everything. Now, in, in your perspective, what were the key factors that got Oculus off the ground in, in your own words or in your opinion? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. And that really is like the central question um, in the book. And, and, and it's like, I think the answer is, it's just, it's such a multitude of factors and some of which I'll describe, but, but I wanted to make that point because I think that even though Oculus felt like an overnight success or might have appeared that way, and they certainly, you know, they're the fastest company ever to a multi-billion dollar exit. So they are basically the ultimate overnight success story. Mm-hmm. Um, it really was something that took years of work from a bunch of different people and people coming together at the right time. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, don't be discouraged if you're a young entrepreneur and struggling. It, you know, these things often take a lot of factors. But certainly one of the, you know, the biggest was the product itself. Palmer, from uh, in 2012, when the story begins, he's living in a trailer um, in Long Beach, California, and is tinkering with virtual reality headsets. And this is at a time when the world has essentially forgotten about VR or sort of considers it a technological punchline similar to jetpacks or flying cars. Mm-hmm. Um, but Palmer still believes in VR largely because he's a big time gamer and wants to be able to like almost step inside the game. And, uh, and, and he has created what many people online in the small community of people who still care about VR think is the best headset ever made. It's affordable. And, uh, and then things really get set into motion when that headset that he, that prototype that he made catches the attention of John Carmack, the legendary game maker who's best known for Doom and Quake and Wolfenstein and other first-person shooters. Mm-hmm. And John is doing some research into virtual reality himself and planning to demo one of his new games in virtual reality at E3, the big video game trade show. Yep. And John finds that, you know, compared to the few headsets that were being that were out there, you know, like there was a headset by Sony and by Imagine and some other companies that the one being made by this kid living in a trailer that, you know, was not only the best, but it was also significantly cheaper than every other headset. Right. At, at, now, was Lucky building this for himself, or did he really want to, you know, just put it out to the world for everybody just to have one? Good question. I mean, certainly it was driven by his own personal passion, and I think that that's something you sort of start to see along the way as the company company evolves, is there's people who get involved because they see opportunity, mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that, and there's people who sort of initially do it because of, of the pure passion, and they often call themselves true believers, and so you know, Palmer, for his own selfish gaming reasons, wanted to do it. Yeah. But at the same time, um, you know, he did believe in VR becoming a more and more important part of the future. He's certainly a visionary. And I think the fact that he's already started another successful company shows that uh, he's, he's got a knack for this sort of thing. Um, and, and, you know, I, I was always struck by something that he wrote in his initial like mission statement for Oculus that was on his original website that sort of ended up never going up because everything got so exciting and changed. But like, you know, he saw Oculus back then as his chance at, as, as you know, his, his chance at finally making VR succeed. This was his tilt at making VR work. And so I think like a lot of people involved in 
Oculus and other emerging technologies that don't get much attention, you know, he saw this as a bit of a mission and, and so, you know, always talked about wanting to do what was best for VR, not himself or not even his own company. And I think that um, that was pretty indicative of how Oculus operated and also why they were very beloved and successful at first. Right. Now, you mentioned that a lot of players uh, contributed to the, like you just mentioned, to the to the success of Oculus. But um, uh, one of these players was Facebook, and they bought Oculus for uh, a sum close to $3 billion. Uh, what do you think will be the ramifications of this acquisition in the next five years, uh, as far as Facebook's involvement with uh, with Oculus and virtual reality? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, like I said, I spent a long time working on this book, and people had a somewhat negative opinion or skeptical opinion of Facebook at the start of this, but mm -hmm. it certainly uh, reached a bit of a fever pitch here in the past year. And I would generally say for a good reason, given how big they are and how much data they control and, mm -hmm. and, and what it might mean if they are involved in augmented reality and virtual reality in a big way. And so, um, you know, on the one hand you have not only did Facebook pay $3 billion to acquire Oculus, but they've also invested about $3 billion more over the past five years. Mm -hmm. And as a VR fan myself, you know, I'm grateful for that. And it's sort of going to be culminating um, in a couple months with the release of the uh, Oculus Quest headset. This is the first headset that's, you know, affordable. I would say, you know, $300, $400. So it's still expensive, but, you know, it, it's within reason similar to consoles. And, uh, right. you know, this, this headset does not need a personal computer. So this is really the first headset designed for a mainstream audience, kind of like the first headset that I would maybe buy for my brother, who's not a big tech guy, but will enjoy it. And, uh, and so I'm grateful for that. And I'm hopeful that that will make a big difference and, and bring this to the mainstream. But at the same time, I'm also very concerned about um, Facebook now having uh, not only personal data, but tracking data because, um, that's how VR works. It has to track your head movement. It has to track your eye movement right. um, and all of these things. Um, and, and, and so I think that trying to understand why Facebook wants to be in the space and sort of looking at what they've done in other areas and their philosophies when it comes to privacy and advertisements um, and, and, you know, digital interaction, I think are very important and, and things that really shifted the end of the book for me. Mm -hmm. Now, in, in your opinion, do you think Oculus should have sold to Facebook or do you think they should have remained independent? That's like the ultimate question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think that like as a fan and as a reader, you always want the underdog company to like stay an underdog. Right. So I would have loved a story where they didn't quote unquote sell out. Um, but at the same time, I think it's significant that Palmer Lucky is no longer with Facebook. Brendan Areeb, who was a huge part of making it happen and was the CEO, he's no longer with Facebook. Right. Michael Antonov um, is no longer with Oculus, but he's still at Facebook. So basically, a lot of people who are assume are probably not happy with their current roles, mm -hmm. but they all do not regret selling to Facebook. And it's not because of the money. It's because of what a big difference that made to the VR industry. Um, you know, like I said, Facebook has put in billions of dollars since. Um, and also, it was a huge wake-up call to uh, Silicon Valley that maybe there's money to be made here. It started, a, you know, sort of a new age gold rush. And so for people who consider themselves true believers, all this investment in VR um, that probably wouldn't have happened without that acquisition is something they feel like made it right, the right decision. Mm -hmm. now, now, did the backlash simmer down? Because there was a lot of backlash from when uh, Oculus sold to Facebook, according to your book. Matt. Uh, and a lot of people were very upset at this. Now, has it 
sort of leveled or is it still ongoing where people are still upset and, and uh, disaffected? Uh, I think it's, it's still very much ongoing. It, you know, it's, it's a really complicated situation. I, I mean, just to, as, as a fan, I'm thinking as a consumer, like people, people loved Oculus and, and more so than the average, even of the average beloved company. Cause um, one thing we didn't mention was that, you know, Oculus's initial success came from the crowdfunding site Kickstarter. So you had all these people who, Literally, their their three hundred dollar contribution or seventy five dollar contribution was the reason that Oculus was successful, and they felt like they were a part of this special thing. And right. then the company was sold, and obviously they didn't participate in that success, which is an interesting conversation for another day with crowdfunding. But but the, you know they also felt like wow, you know this sold out, and this is not what I had signed up for, and um, that definitely still persists to today. And it's it is a weird situation where. You know, people love Oculus, but they hate the parent company and are skeptical of the parent company. Um, and, and I would say that even without some of the events that maybe we'll discuss with Palmer Lucky and his exit or where Oculus is today, um, it, the, the, pers- the fact that Oculus sold to Facebook just really changed the narrative for them and the way that they were perceived. I remember thinking at the time, even before some of the crazier news stories, that just every time anything happened, um, any, there was any news about Oculus in the in the in the years after the acquisition, it was always just um, perceived in the worst possible light. And, you know, this is an extreme example that never actually happened, but um, you know, it's almost like if I, I always used to joke that if Oculus gave a hundred headsets to, uh, you know, a bunch of first graders, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a seemingly charitable gesture, it would be reported as, you know, Facebook's trying to indoctrinate a hundred <laughs> first graders. And, you know, I guess that's also correct, but, but it was just interesting how much, it made people skeptical. And that was such a different contrast from, they, you know, uh, as a storyteller, it was kind of great because there was something poetic about it since Oculus had been the beneficiary of so much great press and basically always getting the benefit of the doubt in the early years. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing the other side of it was fascinating. Right. And, and the grassroots, uh, it was more of a grassroots movement, like you said, where everybody got involved and, and that was part of the appeal of this long lost or, or perceived to be lost technology and being brought over uh, to current times. And uh, I guess people felt uh, a right. big part and, of it. And, and I think that, you know, because of the perception of Facebook amongst many of the early adopters and the people in the grassroots community, um, you know, it was never going to be a great marriage. But there are a lot of things that Oculus could have done post-acquisition to probably make that a lot better. You know, just a, a silly, a small example is that because they were a Kickstarter company, they were constantly posting updates every week and sharing videos and photos of, you know, going to the factory and all these things. Mm-hmm. And people felt like they were part of this experience. So then after the acquisition, they no longer gave any transparency into what this company was. It never, you know, it stopped feeling like a reality show that these people were a part of, and it felt more like a corporate entity. Um, so I think that they didn't do themselves any favors in that regard. Right. Uh, now, as far as the process to write in this book, you had to interview a lot of people. And uh, my, I guess my my next question is, uh, what was it like to interview Palmer Lucky? I mean, the the creator of this or the the person who started all this revolution. Um. So I I've interviewed him a ton of times over the past three years, mm-hmm. and I would say that in many ways he's like a a journalist dream. You know, he's a charismatic guy, but he also is a bit of a showman as you see throughout the book and he knows how to give interesting answers. And more than that, he's just always honest, um, which is something that, you know, especially once they became part of Facebook, wasn't always um, a great thing that he, 
that he was just willing to blurt out the truth and wanted to get it out there. But as a journalist, you have to absolutely love that. Um, and so he was always very frank. There was a, you know, um, but, but at the same time, he, he did often find ways to say things in the most interesting light. You know, an example that comes to mind that appeared later in the book is it was, it was almost exactly three years ago today. It was uh, February 19th, 2016 was the first time I ever really sat down with him and spoke to him for a few hours. And I remember asking him like, Hey Palmer, you know, when you were growing up, what did you want to be? Um, and, and he said, uh, thought about it for a second he said i wanted to be a supervillain and you know <laughs> you're like what supervillain that's crazy and then of course in his palmer way he actually has like an interesting explanation for why though he knows that it's a little bit naughty of an answer and he said you know when i was growing up supervillains were the guys who had all the cool gadgets so obviously he didn't, he didn't want to take over the world but he wanted to have all those cool things mm-hmm. um and i think that that you know as is mentioned in the book that's also just sort of fascinating to think that yeah like when, when i'm 36 um, and, and, you know, in the 80s and 90s, technology was always portrayed as this uh, ominous thing and, and supervillains had the technology and right. their plan was to disrupt the world. And right. then somewhere along the way, disruption became like a buzzword for what companies should want to do and what we should be looking for. And, um, you know, I think that just <laughs> as a country, we're sort of now dealing with the aftermath of that philosophy in a lot of different ways um, and the impact that technology has had over the past 20 years. Right. Now, in your perspective, will virtual reality become as normal as us having a mobile phone or is virtual reality more of a niche uh, concept for a specific group of people, maybe gamers? Um, Yeah, I mean, that that, that really is the ultimate question. And um, I think that I I guess I should answer by saying I'm still as bullish on it being ubiquitous in the same way as mobile phones or even more as I was when I started the book. Though, if you had asked me then, I would have expected we would have been further along in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's always been like the sort of two different trajectories for um, a, a technological revolution. There's the smartphone revolution of the past 10, 12, whatever years, mm-hmm. um, which starts with BlackBerry and iPhone and all that. And then there's the PC revolution of the late 70s. And, and because the smartphone revolution is much more recent, um, and also because it's something that Mark Zuckerberg explicitly compared this to, um, I think there's a tendency to compare it to that and expect that, you know, this year there'll be a million headsets, next year 5 million, and the next year 20 million. And clearly that has not been the case since the, these products released in 2016. But, you know, I, I remember Palmer Lucky talking to me about this early on, and he always saw it as much more like the PC revolution, where even in the, you know, the late 70s, you have Apple and they're the starling company and they really do make a big difference. But my family didn't own a personal computer until 15 years later. Like mm-hmm. it really did not become a mainstream thing until much longer. And I don't think it's going to take 15 years from today, okay. but, but I do think it is going to be a much longer process. And like personal computers, it's going to stay initially with enthusiasts and then move on to enterprise and you'll see the productivity aspects and then hopefully it'll reach a consumer base. Right. And, and, you know, there's, um, I believe the same thing you do. I think uh, you know it's it's not going to take long for us to be able to uh, enjoy this uh, technology, but it's it's still a little a little while from from now. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, like 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 I think the the common thing to think about is gaming for understandable reasons. That's the company that Oculus was, but Facebook's interest was right. uh, the social and and just the way that it can replace screen. So you know, I'm staring at a television right now in my home um, and. You know, if, if I had a pair of glasses, I, I could potentially and, and, you know, the resolution was good enough. I could potentially not need the television and I could just put on 
and I could buy an app for $1 that would basically be the equivalent of like, do you want a 50 inch television, a 70 inch television? Right. And it would create that experience for me. Um, and I think an even better example of that is, you know, the, like there's, there's like movie theater apps in that you can use in VR. And so, you know, I could be in my 400 square foot apartment where I have this television, or I can just put on a headset and suddenly be in a movie theater with a 60 foot screen. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when you start thinking about how VR and even augmented reality too can replace those kinds of things, um, it does make for a very interesting future. Right. Well, uh, we're almost out of time, Blake. Uh, I, there's so much to talk about your book. Uh, I mean, we didn't even get to the whole, um, you know, um, towards the end of the book, how uh, Palmer Lucky ends up uh, leaving Oculus. Uh, but um, I, I think that's up for our readers to um, to discover in this uh, in, in your in your book. Now, um, is there anything that you'd like to add before we sign off? Um. No, not really. Just that I guess um, the one thing I'd want to say and that I've learned over this past five years, maybe I didn't know it um, consciously when I was writing Console Wars, was that I, I you know, I, I basically came to, you know, I you spend a lot of time writing and it's a lonely process and you're you're in front of a keyboard and at various points you imagine, you imagine uh, who's, who's on the other side who's reading this and the person that I always imagine reading it and the person that I write for in my mind is my grandmother, mm-hmm. um, which I mentioned because, uh, you know, this is a high tech story. Console Wars was a gaming story, but to me, they're both human stories, and really, it's about the characters and, and wanting to write in a way that someone like my grandma, who doesn't know about technology and maybe doesn't care about technology, would still find fascinating. And so, um, you know, to me, I, I, I love this story because it is a modern-day American dream story, and right. um, and I think it says a lot about the current version of the American dream and, and what sorts of people have access to it and the sorts of challenges and what it takes to succeed and how much luck is involved. And so I guess it is also a very nice coincidence. The main character's name is Lucky. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, I, I think that there's so much there. So I hope that, you know, if you have any interest in, if, if you're listening and, you know, whether you love VR or you're not that interested, I hope that you'll at least just give it a shot and get to know some of these incredible characters and seeing what they're trying to do to change the world. Absolutely. Blake, I, I want to, um, I, I wish you success with your book and all your um, upcoming projects. And uh, I also want to take, uh, thank you for taking the time and, and talking with me today. Thank you, David. I really appreciate you having me on the show and asking really good questions. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I've been talking with Blake J. Harris on his new book, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. It's available now in our all major book retailers. I want to remind our listeners that if you missed our interview with Blake J. Harris today on his latest book, The History of the Future, you can always listen to our program on our YouTube channel, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. This is your host, David Inojosa. Thank you for listening.